Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. It is so good to have you with us. You know, my wife Bianca and I have had the privilege of going to Israel a number of times. And to be honest, I can't wait to get back there. And I can't wait to take you with us to see some of the incredible sights and experiences there. But I want to tell you about two churches that stand out in my memory. And the first church is the Church of the Paternoster. Paternoster is the Our Father in Latin. It is a church on the Mount of Olives and we always stop there while walking on the road towards Jerusalem that Jesus would have walked on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And one of the incredible things about this church is that all around the courtyard and the church are over a hundred translations of the Lord's Prayer in different languages from around the world. A second church I want to tell you about is the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, where supposedly the angel spoke to Mary about what God was going to be doing in and through her. And once again, as you walk around this church, you can see hundreds of mosaics of pictures of Jesus and his mother Mary in the styles and the cultural styles of all the hundreds of cultures around the world. And this is quite an experience. Because here we are in Israel, in the Middle East, and yet we are seeing the Lord's Prayer in all these languages around the world. We are hearing those languages because there are literally tourists from all around the world. When you go there, uh, we're seeing the cultures, we're hearing the cultures, we're just recognizing this great reality that we all call God our Father. Do you know that one of the biggest differences between Christianity and many of the other world religions is that if you had to convert to any of the other world religions, not only are you converting to their religion, you are converting to their culture. Think about Hinduism. Think about Buddhism. Think about Islam. You are not only taking on their religious ideologies, you are taking on what they wear, what they eat, the many cultural things that they do in their religion. And for the most part, the center of gravity for these religions is still where their religion started. So Buddhists and Hindus are still concentrated in the East. Muslims are still concentrated in the Middle East, but that is completely different when we get to Christianity. While Christianity may have started in Israel, that is no longer where the center of gravity is for Christianity. Because Christianity spread from there to the Mediterranean, to Africa, to Europe, to Northern America, to the rest of Africa, to the rest of the world. In fact, currently, the center of gravity at the moment is in the global south, South America and Africa. And so we've got this incredible, rich, cultural diversity representing Christianity on planet Earth. And yet, we are able to celebrate, like these churches in Israel celebrate, that we are all one family. Now, Here's one of the things I love about the Bible. If you read the Bible, there are a whole lot of threads that kind of start in Genesis 1, make their way throughout the entire Old and New Testament and find their culmination through Christ and their final expression in Revelation 21 and 22. There are dozens of these themes or these threads. And today we are going to be following one particular thread. We're going to be looking at the family of God, the thread of the family of God. And the reason is, this series, Glad You Asked, 
We asked you to send us your questions, and a number of questions came in concerning family and God's family. For example, one of the questions was, Why, if family is so important to God in the Bible, does Jesus sometimes treat his own nuclear family in harsh or dismissive ways? Another question that came in was concerning one of Jesus' teachings that sounds so strange to us, and we're going to unpack that, so please stay with us for the sermon. But why does Jesus say that if we are to be one of his disciples, we need to hate our father and our mother? One of the other questions came in uh, concerning the fact that if we all have the same origin, aren't we all, therefore, family? And so to help us answer these questions, we are going to be following this divine thread of God's family from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22. And what we're going to be seeing is that the story of God and humanity is God unifying us as one large family. So as with all good theology, the best place to start is in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see the first family. God created Adam and Eve as this unit that worked so closely with and under God. This is one of the commands that God gave them, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. In other words, have tons of kids. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God's goal was never for Adam and Eve to somehow have this holy, close experience in Eden and keep it there. God's goal was always take what is true of Eden. Take what is good and beautiful here and be fruitful out there. Multiply it out there. Take this blessing out into the rest of the world. That was always God's plan. But what happened is Genesis chapter 3, sin came in. Adam and Eve decided to redefine good and evil, redefine what God's plan was for their lives. And while the sin was primarily vertical between them and God, immediately we see that there were horizontal consequences for their sin. And so at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see described for us, this is before sin came in, that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. They were experiencing such incredible unity, not only with God, but with themselves. Genesis chapter 2, sin enters the picture vertically, but horizontally, Adam and Eve look at each other. They realize they are naked and immediately they feel shame and they feel the need to cover up. You see, sin separates us vertically and sin separates us horizontally and thus started a domino effect of humanity moving further and further away from God vertically and each other horizontally. So Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden by God because of the sin that they brought into the garden and they had two children, Cain and Abel. Now guys, this is the first family in the Bible. Cain and Abel's parents walked with God. They had seen God in a way that you and I would never have been able to experience God. And yet they did. And so we would maybe imagine that that family should have been the perfect family. They were going to read the Bible together every single night. They were going to pray about everything together. They were not going to get bogged down by TV and social media. They were just going to be this perfect picture of heaven and earth in this family. Is that what happened? No. 
You see, Cain and Abel brought their offerings to God, and for reasons that we don't have time for today, God didn't look with favor upon Cain's offering, but he did look with favor upon Abel's offering. And Cain was so ticked off with God, Cain was so ticked off with his brother, that Cain took it out on his brother, with the end result that he killed him. There was murder in the very first family in the Bible. You think your family is bad? Take some solace in this, right? Then let's go forward a few generations. We get to a guy called Lamech. Lamech is a guy who had multiple wives already breaking down the nuclear family plan of God. And he was a mass murderer, continuing the theme of Cain. And he wasn't ashamed about it. He was boasting in it. Then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 6. And this is what we see. Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God was grieved by this reality. So he decided to cleanse the earth of these corrupt human beings. But he chose to save Noah and his family to kind of kickstart humanity once again. So on the other side of the flood, Noah and his family multiply. They fill the earth. They create civilizations. Many of them didn't know God. But God said, I'm not done with my plan. And so he starts with Abraham. He starts with one family. And this is what he says to Abraham. Genesis 12 verses 2 to 3. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you I will curse. Listen to this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Can you see what's going on here? Just like in the garden, God's plan was never for Adam and Eve to keep the blessing of God to themselves, but it was for the world. And in the same way, God is saying, I am wanting to bless the world. But the way I am choosing to do that is to start with one family. I'm going to bless one family and through them and their descendants, I am going to bless the entire world world. Now that sounds great, except for one huge problem. Abraham and Sarah were old and they had no children. But God says, listen, in spite of your barrenness and your age, I'm going to give you your miracle baby because it is through you, Abraham and Sarah, that your descendants are going to bless the world. Fast forward 10 years. I'm sure Abraham and Sarah were doing what they could to kind of bring a baby onto the scene. Nothing had happened. So Sarah says, listen, Abraham, I've got a plan. How about taking your concubine, Hagar? Why don't you lie with her, have a child with her, and then we can get God's program going. I don't see Abraham objecting to this plan. So he lies with Hagar and they have a child, Ishmael. Sarah gets so jealous with this whole situation that Sarah mistreats Hagar, mistreats Ishmael, and ultimately she kicks them out. And this is what he said of Ishmael, 16, Genesis 16 verses 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards his brothers. So who are his brothers? Well, the time did come for Abraham and Sarah to have a child, Isaac. This was the child of promise. This was the miracle baby. This was the child through whom God was going to bless the whole entire world. So now we've got Abraham and we've got two children. 
Ishmael and Isaac. Sarah dies a short while later and Abraham takes a third wife, Keturah. And then we get to Genesis 25. Now, if ever you've done one of the Read Through Your Bible series and you get to Genesis 25, I guarantee you that most of you skipped Genesis 25 because it's again, it's a whole list of people, a whole list of names, a whole list of tribes that you've never heard of. It seems to have no value to you. So you skip it. Let me tell you what's going on with Genesis 25. I'm not going to make you read it right now. Genesis 25 outlines the three family lines of Abraham. We've got Abraham and Keturah and their descendants. We've got Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and their descendants. And then we've got Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and their descendants. And this line is ultimately the, the line that become the family of Israel. So here Abraham's family is split three ways. If you did pause long enough to read Genesis chapter 25 with an eye to detail, what you may notice with some of these names is that these names are the tribes and the clans that we meet later on in the biblical story. And so the story of Israel is largely a story of descendants of Isaac at war with the descendants of Ishmael and Abraham and Keturah. In other words, it's a story about family feuding. It's a story about estranged brothers and sisters. And so you might be tempted to think, oh, well, we don't need to worry about these two lines. We only need to worry about this line because they're the good guys. These are the bad guys. So let's write them off and let's focus in on what's happening here. And I would say, I don't think that's what God wants us to do for two reasons. Maybe three reasons. The first reason is Israel aren't always the good guys. Just read the Old Testament. They are so full of idolatry and sin. They are not always the good guys. Number two, remember God's plan for Eden, God's plan for Abraham was never about containing the blessing for themselves. I want to bless this family in order to bless these families and all the other nations of the world. And reason number three, there are some strange stories and hints that come up in the Old Testament that give us some idea, a mysterious idea, but some idea that God is still at work in these two family lines as well. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first example doesn't necessarily come from these family lines, but illustrate the same point. Genesis chapter 14, we meet this king, King Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. Salem, think about the city Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Salem is the city that becomes Jerusalem. But this is long before David. This is long before the nation of Israel, right? So Melchizedek is the king of the city before Israel moves in. He is also described as a priest of God most high. Now that's not meant to be cryptic. That's Yahweh. There's only one God most high. Melchizedek comes in and he blesses Abraham. And so he comes from nowhere. He disappears back into the pages of scripture. Who is this guy? We don't really know, but we know that this is a favorable image in scripture because Jesus is likened to this guy, but he's not connected to anybody we know. Then we get Jethro. He is the father-in-law of Moses. He is described as a priest of Midian. 
if you go back to Genesis chapter 25, Midian is one of the descendants of Abraham and Keturah. So they become a tribe. They become a people group. Right? So Jethro, a priest of Midian, shows up on the scene. He hears from Moses everything that God did for Israel. And he celebrates. They have a sacrifice towards God, the God of Israel. And he prays also a blessing upon Moses. So what's going on there? Then we've got Ruth, who is a Moabite, a descendant of Lot. We've got Caleb. Remember Joshua and Caleb, the two spies? Caleb, who is a Kenizzite, who comes from the line of Esau. We've got Rahab, the prostitute, who is a Canaanite. And so the Old Testament is not only a story of how God is at work in one family, but the Old Testament is a story of how God is at work uniting all families on planet Earth. Then, of course, as we follow this thread to, through, we get to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 opens up with one of those chapters, once again, that we tend to gloss over. Um, we don't see an immediate relevance to our lives. It doesn't make good devotional material and inspirational material for my day today. However, if you had to read those names again with an eye to detail, you'll notice that four names stand out. And they stand out for a number of reasons. Reasons number one is that they are women. Reason number two is that their lives are shrouded in scandal. Reason number three is that they are not Israelites. And so quite literally, in the earthly bloodline of Jesus, we are already seeing that it is in Christ and His blood that the family of God comes together. Then we see Jesus' ministry. Not only is He ministering to Jews, He's ministering to Canaanites, Canaanite women, Syrophoenician women, Samaritan women, Gentile leaders. And so Jesus is demonstrating that I am taking as Abraham's seed, that is who Jesus is, as Abraham's seed, the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, I am bringing the blessing of God through the family of Abraham to all the nations and I am inviting them back into the family. And this is still what Jesus is doing. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 15, Paul prays, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives his name. John chapter 1 verses 12, Yet to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 3 verses 29, If you belong to Christ, then you, regardless of your national and ethnic background, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and therefore is according to the promise. Now let's continue following the thread to the end of the Bible. And, and what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is a huge family reunion. Maybe in church you've heard us sing some songs and in these songs are the phrases every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And do you know that that phrase is used around 10 times in the book of Revelation? This is a beautiful picture of all the nations coming together again as one family, one Lord and one Father. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you read the book of Revelation in your imagination. I don't know what comes to mind when you think about heaven. 
or when you think about the new heavens and the new earth, this picture, this picture of the nations coming together. Here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like a three million year Hillsong worship service with Christians who look like me, middle class white Christians. No, rather, it is the picture of these nations, these tribes, these cultures, bringing everything that is beautiful and unique about them, being united under Christ and being united as one family with one father. Revelation 21, 26 says the glory and honor of the nations will be, be brought into it. That is the city. I wonder what we're going to see from our culturally rich nation. I wonder what we're going to see from South Africa. I wonder what songs we're going to bring. I wonder what cultural riches are going to be on display for the world in Revelation chapter 21. I wonder what's going to be on the bride. And so the end of the story is the family of God and all of her beautiful diversity united under one father, one big family reunion. All right, so we've looked at the family tree of God. I'm hoping you're still with me. Let us now go back to those questions. Question number one, why was Jesus sometimes so harsh with his nuclear family when the Bible makes such a big deal about family? So where does this question come from? Matthew 12 verses 46 tells us this strange story. Let's read it together. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers, his nuclear family, stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus seems so dismissive of his nuclear family. This may seem shocking to you. Let me tell you, as shocking as it seems to you, it was even more shocking to these people. N.T. Wright, who's a great historian and a great theologian, he writes this. He says, in a peasant society where familial relations provided one's basic identity, it was shocking in the extreme. In first century Jewish culture, for which the sense of familial and racial loyalty was a basic symbol of the prevailing worldview, it cannot but have been devastating. Jesus was proposing to treat his followers as a surrogate family. This had a substantial positive result. Jesus intended his followers to inherit all the closeness and mutual obligations that belonged with family membership in that close-knit, family-based society. This was not just extraordinarily challenging at a personal level, it was deeply subversive at a social, cultural, religious, and political level. Now that is such a mouthful. Guys, there is no doubt that the nuclear family for God and in God's plan and God's design is so fundamentally important. It's just such a rich place where faith and the kingdom of God can be expressed and experienced. But it was only ever meant to be a microcosm of the kingdom of God. You see, God's picture of family eternally is not your family, but is that your family is united to my family 
and is united to someone else's family and is united to people of Christ's families in Lanasia, in Soweto, in Tokosa, in Bryanston, in the Transkei, in the Western Cape, in the DRC, in Nigeria, Morocco, Greece, Ukraine, Singapore, Taiwan, Australia, North America, South America. That is God's eternal picture of family. And so that leads us to the next question. Why does Jesus say, that we must hate our families if we are to be his disciples. Well, once again, this comes from a passage in the book of Luke and Matthew. I'm going to read Luke's version. Luke 14, verses 26 to 23. Sorry, 26 to 30. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. Some of you are teenagers out there. You're like, I've already got this verse done. This is my new life verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you'd be making a great mistake to stop reading there. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be, be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the costs to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now this is strange, at first glance anyway. Because we would claim that our God is the God of love. God is love. Jesus taught us to love. The greatest of these is love. Love your neighbor. Love your God. Love your Father in heaven. Even love your enemies. Why is Jesus teaching us to hate our nuclear families? What's going on here? Well, I'm hoping you're realizing that God cannot simply mean I am teaching you to hate your nuclear family. First of all, the word hate here is not necessarily meant to be filled with all the negative emotion that we add to the word hate. While it is probably the best English word for the Greek word here, there is a lot more going on here. We've already seen at the end of Matthew that this is about more about, are you loving your family more than me? In fact, if we go to the Gospel of Luke, we see exactly that. Are you loving your family more than me? But now the greater context of this passage is that Jesus is teaching us to count the costs. Count the costs. And this is going to express itself in a number of ways. You know, for our culture, counting the costs is going to be recognizing that we can make an idol out of family. We can even make an idol out of Christian family. In the name of making our family this nice Christian family, in the name of trying to do faith together, we can sometimes inadvertently move our families away from God's family, God's kingdom, and God's purposes. And so we are going to have to lay those impulses down. At times we are going to have to sacrifice. At times we are going to have to make decisions 
concerning Sundays, concerning weekends, concerning our time, concerning how we see our kingdom and our families with regards to God's kingdom and God's eternal family. Jesus is saying that if we truly love him, then of course we are going to love our family. But we are going to move our family towards his eternal family and towards his kingdom purposes. And that may cost us at times. Do you also know that there are some families on earth right now that when someone in their family becomes a Christian, it is the family's job to kill them. Or at least to get rid of them and disown them and treat them with dishonor. And so for someone coming to Christ in these countries, they've got to count the costs. They've got to weigh this up. Am I willing to value Jesus more than the heartbreaking reality of being disowned or treated violently by my own brothers and sisters and parents? Maybe some of you have have experienced that. Not in full form, but you've experienced derision maybe even mockery for your faith. And so you've had to count some cost. That is what's going on here in this picture. And now to finally go into the last question, but aren't we all family? And the answer is, I'm hoping you're seeing, yes, the advance of the kingdom of God is about bringing God's children home to his family. Your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving family members, your unbelieving colleagues, are actually estranged brothers and sisters who God Almighty wants back in His family. That is what missions is about. It's about inviting estranged brothers and sisters back into the eternal family of God. And so God's vision for the church is that we begin living that reality now, which is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, in the church there's no more Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, slave nor free, male nor female, married or unmarried, single or those with families and kids. Those divisions and those things that are even valuable to us like family and marriage are not as important as the eternal reality of being part of God's family. And so I know that sometimes this can sound like Christianese, but in the truest sense of the word, I am your brother. You are my sister. You are my brother. And that is going to be true for all of eternity. Let us pray. Father, we all come to you, one Father, one Lord. And Lord, we recognize that this is part of your great picture, that we are part of your family. We're not just part of a religion. We don't just go to church. We are part of your family and we choose to move our lives and our families towards that reality even now. But Lord, sometimes family gets messy. 
And sometimes even church family gets messy. And so, yes, that gets difficult, Lord. And that has been true from the New Testament times up until today. And yet, Lord, you are at work. And so, God, I pray that by your spirits, we would really feel and see this reality. And God, I also pray that you would grow within us this impulse to make the circle bigger. To invite estranged brothers and sisters back into God's family. And experience the blessing of God's promises. Holy Spirit, do that in us, but do that through us. In your mighty name, amen.